Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, Scott Lloyd of Offit Kerman joins us to talk about intellectual property rights and what is going on with Taylor Swift. Stick around. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another rendition of Check Your Balances. Ross, how are you doing today? I am fantastic. We're talking about Team Taylor today. This might be my favorite subject in all of the world, actually. Taylor Swift. I've been a, a fanboy since, maybe not since day one, but I, I was an early adopter for sure. Yeah, you know, and I applaud you because uh, you were a Taylor Swift fan, I think, before it was cool to be a Taylor Swift fan. I, I still don't know if it's cool to be a Taylor Swift fan, but uh, you, you have held that belief and, and held it strongly uh, for a long time, and I've always appreciated that about you. I came around to the music pretty quickly, but the one thing I always appreciated from the beginning was she always had a hand in writing her own music. And regardless of who the artist is, that's always earned my respect in a world where it's really easy just to be pitched a song and you know sing it and have it doctored up on uh, on the computer. Yeah, I mean it's really interesting. And famously, somebody like Anne Murray to go way back, you know, did not write her songs, but had an incredible voice. And and I do think that there's a a talent there where where you can really appreciate what she did and and her work as an artist but you're right when somebody writes the music themselves it always feels a little bit more authentic um versus somebody that's you know may, maybe almost more like an actor in in the fact that they're reproducing somebody else's work and what we're going to learn is from a financial perspective when you have a hand in writing your own music that gives you a lot of leverage too so props to her for being a part of that process why we're talking about Taylor Swift, and honestly, it feels like I've been reliving 2008 all week with the drop of Taylor's version of Fearless, is she has been in the news because she is on a vendetta against the group that bought the masters of her original six albums, and she is slowly going to re-record all of those albums so that she can own the masters to these new re-recordings and essentially control her own destiny. And this brought up a lot of questions about intellectual property rights uh, between you and me, Ross. So we decided to bring on an expert who can enlighten us a little bit on the types of things he's seeing in the IP world and, and give us a sense of what that battle, for lack of a better word, looks like from the inside. So with that in mind, let's cut over to the conversation that you and I had with Scott Lloyd. Today, we are joined by Scott Lloyd, a principal with Offit Kerman. He is a lawyer who specializes in part in intellectual property law. We are so happy to have you with us today, Scott. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking to you guys. Starting off really broadly, Scott, what is intellectual property and how do you even begin to go about protecting it? Uh, sure. There, there are basically four, four different forms of what I'll call, you know, kind of recognized intellectual property uh, patents, which protect uh, useful inventions and, and uh, designs. Uh, you have trademarks, which uh, companies and, and people will use to identify themselves as being the source of whatever products or services they're offering to the public. 
You have copyright, which is, I think we're going to talk about some today, which protects uh, creative works. Uh, think of uh, writers, painters, uh, musicians, all of those types of uh, individuals can secure copyrights to protect their works. And then lastly, we have trade secrets. You know, the most famous one's probably the Coca-Cola formula. It's like breaking into Fort Knox to get access to the Coke formula. It was never patented. You know, it's a it's a recipe that is protected by maintaining its its secrecy and uh, avoiding disclosure to anybody that doesn't need to know it. Trade secrets, you have to you have to protect yourself, right? They're only as good as uh, the level of secrecy that that you can apply to them. Uh, copyrights, trademarks, and patents can can be um, obtained from the federal government and registered. So then you've got a, a government sanction protection as opposed to one that you're just kind of handling and managing yourself. So the, the situation that we asked you to come on the show to talk about today, I, I think is uh, a really fascinating one. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about Taylor Swift and what's going on with her music catalog. But just broadly, we're seeing a trend right now where a lot of artists and musicians are selling the rights to their back catalogs. And there has been a couple different explanations as to why artists might be doing that and and what's going on in that space. But the Taylor Swift example, I think, is interesting because she's basically fighting back against a trend where where a lot of the other artists we see selling their work, uh, they seem to be doing that by by choice. All right. So just to go through what has happened, Taylor Swift signs an early artist deal with a record label, fairly small label at the time when she's an up, up and coming artist to put out six albums. She's now passed that deal and has moved on to a new record label, and her existing label was purchased for somewhere in the neighborhood of, I think, $200, $300 million. Of that amount, you know, it's expected that her catalog alone was worth somewhere in the $140 to $200 million purchase price or, you know, implied value of that. And then that's now been resold. And she had some personal issues with Scooter Braun, who led the first purchase. They've then resold her catalog back out of it. And what I see her doing now is really fighting against the fact that she wasn't included as part of the discussion. Uh, And she's fighting in a couple different ways. But when you own a copyright, or when I guess really when you sell the rights to your copyright to the label, because they owned that, that work and they owned the master's, does she have any recourse? Should she be included in the process if you're then talking about selling her work again in the secondary market? Well, I mean, in a moral sense, I think she should. And um, what, I, what I've read is I, I don't think she was completely shut out. It's, it's just that, you, you know, as soon as she um, indicated that she had some interest in perhaps purchasing the, uh, her old master's, um, you know, it kind of fell on deaf ears because she and Scooter Braun don't get along. But she does have some rights. So, so the record company Big Machine owned her her master recordings, and uh, that doesn't mean they they own the underlying composition, the the lyrics and the music. She owns that. So, it's not uncommon uh, for a recording artist, especially a new one, to get into a deal. Uh, the terms of which include uh, allocation of the copyrights in the master recordings to the producer or the record company or the publishing company, you know, depending on what kind of deal it is. 
So this isn't something new. Uh, a lot of artists do that. And, you know, the um, justification for it is, well, somebody's going to invest in me, invest in the recording process. I'm an unproven artist. So I'm going to negotiate some rights that, that, are, that they're going to have in some of my work product for, for a period of time. And in her case, uh, from what I've read, her, she, she, she can go ahead and re-record the songs after, I think it was the end of October last year. So she has rights in the underlying compositions part of that bundle of rights is you, you have the right to go ahead and, and record, you know, make recordings. Um, so contractually, she couldn't do that until last fall. Now she can. So what you're going to end up with is basically Taylor covering her own songs, right? Because we've already got master recordings that have sold millions and millions of copies out there, you know, in, in reproduction. So she's going to She's going to essentially cover her, her own original recordings, which is kind of an interesting thought when you when you consider it. But you so what you'll end up with is two sets of, of works potentially in the marketplace that are very much the same. And, you know, what what can then happen is, let's say I'm making a movie or a TV show and I want to use Taylor's songs. Now I've got two sets of of reproductions to choose from and I can I can get a bidding war going right you know she's going to re-record her songs they're going to be out there and from a commercial standpoint it it's going to create a competitive situation between her and I think it's um Shamrock Holdings I think is the name of the company that that bought the catalog from Scooter Braun's holding company so you got you got two owners of two sets of master recordings potentially in the future, and um, you know that that creates a different market dynamic when, than when there's only one. So, so Taylor Swift famously writes a lot of her music. Is the ability that she has to do this because of the fact that she is both the songwriter and then the performer of it? It feels like we haven't seen this before. Now, maybe, maybe we have, and, and I, I just don't know the examples of it, but most of the other sales of these works either seem to be pretty amicable, uh, where, where the artist is kind of fine with it, or seem to be in situations where maybe the artist is no longer relevant or has even passed away, and then you're seeing the family sell their work to, to kind of monetize it in that way. So, so does she have unique rights here that other artists typically don't if they're not songwriters? You know, she's a musician, so artist and songwriter kind of kind of means the same thing, right? Um, but but that's a key point. Um, if she wasn't the the writer of her own songs, then this would be a different scenario. You know, if somebody else had had written the songs and she wanted to re-record them, uh, she would have to get permission from potentially that that party um, in order to do what she's trying to do now, but. Since she writes everything herself, she has the ability to, to just go ahead and do that with, without that wrinkle in the equation. As we were talking, I recalled a similar battle over master recordings. Famously, Michael Jackson outbid Paul McCartney for the ownership of the Beatles back catalog decades ago. And uh, that scenario just came to mind as we were talking about Taylor Swift in particular. I remember that. <laughs> 
But but at least Paul McCartney got to bid. Yeah, so Paul got to bid. He was actually the one who notified Michael Jackson of the idea of buying master recordings. He just got outbid by a very popular Michael Jackson in the in the late 70s. So Scott, I was looking through uh, your page on the website and it looks like one of your recent topics you've talked about is taking a turn to a new topic is IP in the hemp industry. And that's not something I've ever thought about. Would you care to share a little bit about some of the uh, relevant topics there in the IP world? Uh, sure. Yeah, I've, I've given a few different webinars on, on that topic. And I think I have another one that I'm delivering um, in, in early May. But um, what my segments are usually about are um, protecting the, the plant varieties. And there are a couple different ways you can do that. There are there's something called a plant patent, um, which is different than a utility patent, which is what we normally think of when we talk about patents. But you can, if you've got an asexually produced plant variety cultivar uh, that, that is novel and uh, you know meets all the requirements for a plant patent, then you can obtain a plant patent. Similarly, the Department of Agriculture has something called the Plant Variety Protection Office. And there you can you can go and if you've got a new stable distinctive uh, line of, of plants that you want to protect, you can get what's called a plant variety protection certificate. And uh, they they last I think the same amount of time as patents. The requirements are a little bit different. People don't know as much about those, but it's a it's a good way to protect your plant varieties and it's not limited to asexual reproduction. So you can have seed seed plants, which, which hemp is, and uh, tubers also. And uh, the other thing I talk about is just utility patents around, you know, growth processes, manufacturing processes, uh, processes for isolating cannabinoids like CBD, um, you know, different, different uh, things like that. So you can, you can obtain utility patent protection on those. And then the, uh, the other IP that we talk about is trademarks. Uh, it used to be that you couldn't, you couldn't get a trademark on a cannabis product because it wasn't legal. And then a couple years ago, the law changed a little bit. So now we know hemp is legal. So when you file for a trademark application, you have to tell the trademark office what it is that you're selling when you use the mark. And, uh, you know, it used to be that if you said you were selling marijuana or hemp or anything uh, in that arena, they would reject you because that, that was an illegal product to sell. So that's changed. So now as long as you're operating within the hemp regulations, you can get trademarks on those products. So hearing you talk about the hemp industry and what they're doing with this, the, the only real world example I've seen of something similar is in the fruit aisle at the grocery store. Uh, and in particular, uh, a few years back, I saw this for the first time, which were these grapes that tasted like cotton candy. And they were literally branded as like cotton candy grapes. I'm not going to get the brand right uh, offhand. But are we seeing that in other areas of plants, right? So not just hemp, but are, are you seeing kind of the protection of new strains or the engineering of new strains of plants kind of a, across the space? And, and kind of is, is that super new and we're just now seeing it or has that been going on for a while uh, it's been going on for a while um and you know i think most of that is genetic engineering um when you're trying to modulate flavor profiles for your for your plant 
you know, to produce something like cotton candy grapes, that's, that's probably a genetic modification um, that's, that's occurred. I don't know that for sure. I'm not familiar with cotton candy grapes, but, you know, agriculture, um, you know, there, there are a lot of different reasons that, you know, agriculture produces genetically modified crops. A lot of it has to do with um, resistance to pesticides or boosting nutritional profiles, but, but also flavors uh, can be modulated using that technology. And it, it may be that there are some, you know, some plant varieties that are protected in the way that I just talked about a few minutes ago. But usually um, with genetic modifications, we're talking about utility patents, um, you know, so companies will file uh, to get to get patents on something like cotton candy grapes. And I mean, patents in the traditional sense, not plant patents. Just you mentioning the plant variety protection office of the U.S. government made me realize even though I've always known how big the government is, just the extent to which our government spans, it's amazing how many different things they need to think about in, in just running our country. Yeah, yeah, there's there's no doubt about it. Um, but, you know, places like the Patent Office, the Trademark Office, the um, Plant Variety Protection Office, those those tend to be profit centers for the federal government. You know, I can't tell you how much people people spend on me filing and prosecuting patent applications. It's, it's nuts. Um, but there's, you know, there's a, j just about everything you want to do with the patent office in particular, there's, there's a fee associated with it. Um, and, uh, some fees are more than others. So lots of, uh, lots of money, um, going to the government through that particular agency. And when you mentioned plant variety, you know, the context of hemp and marijuana was what first flashed in my mind. But then I recalled the podcast I was listening to previously where, you know, plant protection extends far beyond just the marijuana industry. And farmers in this country have a lot of intellectual property to protect as well. And the context of the interview I heard was actually about China coming in to try to steal farming intellectual property and bring that back for use overseas. Is that something that comes across your plate every now and then? And, and how real is the threat of, you know, China in particular, but uh, people overseas coming in and stealing IP from the U.S.? Um, you know, it happens all the time. It has happened all the time for years and years and years. Um, but it's, you know, with, um, look, I'll, I'll use patents as an example, since most of the IP work I do is in that area. Um, you know, patents are, are a creature of national law. So the United States has its patent office. China has its, its own intellectual property office that grants patents. Um, and, all you know, all of your first world countries have those and, and some second and third world countries have them, too. Uh, the scope of protection from a geographic standpoint is going to be limited to, to where you filed your application. If I get a U.S. patent, that means I can exclude others from making, using, selling, or importing my invention. It doesn't mean I can keep somebody from doing any of those things in China. Um, you know, where, where China would come in would be if they wanted to, you know, say if I'm a Chinese national and, you know, I, I see a U.S. patented technology and, and I want to practice it in China. Um, I can do that, but 
what I can't do is then export it back to the U.S. because then that triggers the the patent protection of whoever holds that patent. But you know that's a that's a long answer. But the short answer is sure. <laughs> people people steal IP from each other all the time, whether they're in the same country or different ones, and uh, um, it's it's expensive to prevent people from doing that. You know, once you once you have a patent, um, enforcing it against somebody who's infringing is is quite an expensive proposition usually so um that uh that doesn't always happen even even when it can can you think of any stories where the line has been particularly blurry about whether something is protectable or not and two parties you know who are using similar marks and and how that might have played out I'll give you an example. The, uh, the the makers of of cell phones, you know, like the the iPhone and the Samsung Galaxy and all those types, um, those those tend to be protected by design patents. Um, so a design patent protects how the thing looks. So you know, think of an iPhone. You've got you know, kind of this rectangular thing with rounded corners and there's a there's a round button at the bottom and then the screen's a certain size and the, the icons are laid out on the screen in a certain configuration. Um, you know, those those companies are, are always, uh, you know, suing each other and other companies for knocking off their designs. Uh, that that kind of litigation goes on quite a bit. But those those companies have, you know, have huge amounts of money and they can afford to go around suing each other and enforcing their patents against each other. And 95% of the time, the things, the cases will settle. It's fairly rare where you get a, a patent infringement action that actually goes to trial. But the, the same, the same thing happens with trademarks. There was a, there was a recent change in the trademark regulations. Now, if you are a foreign company or a foreign individual and you want a U.S. trademark, you have to hire a U.S. barred attorney to represent you. And that was a reaction to a lot of the, um, you know, cyber squatting as, as well as um, kind of trademark hijacking that was happening, particularly with Chinese nationals and Chinese companies filing trademark applications in the United States without having you use the trademarks or necessarily having any intent to use the trademarks. So there was a, a change in the law to, you know, kind of help, help shield the, the U S economy against some of that activity. So I want to take us back a little bit to the music industry. And the more I thought about this story that we were going to cover today, I started, started thinking about both sides of the transaction uh, and, and Rolling Stone, magazine had had an article that basically suggested why some of these artists might be selling their catalogs right now uh which some of it was tax based um that you know if if you're expecting the Biden administration to raise the capital gains tax particularly on transactions above a million dollars in gains it makes a lot more sense to sell something very large now at a 20% capital gains rate than potentially in the future, most of that transaction is going to be categorized as ordinary income, which would be a huge, huge difference for you know a, a large catalog sale. The other side of the transaction, I think, is probably part of the search for yield. In the investing world right now, bond yields are way down. Any investor that's looking for income, which 
you know, by the way, is a huge category of baby boomers looking to retire, trying to find income is going, well, where can I get income from my portfolio? And they're looking at kind of alternative sources and a music catalog is is kind of interesting in, if you're thinking about it in that light that I can buy royalties. Uh, it's likely uncorrelated with the equity market, right? The consumption of those things are 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 not necessarily going to be directly linked. So I can see why you're seeing some of those transactions on both sides. But with the Taylor Swift situation in particular, you've got an artist that's essentially trying to inflict damage on the buyer of the, that royalty stream. It, right or wrong, regardless of, of how you think about that, does that put the proposition of buying those rights in the future at risk if the investor thinks that they're going to be under attack? Yeah, well, obviously there's a there's a new step in the due diligence process that everybody's going to be thinking about now, right? Because um, you know Shamrock uh, Shamrock, the owner of the uh, Taylor Swift catalog, now is actually an investment fund. So it's it's interesting that you mentioned kind of non traditional uh, revenue streams for um, folks that are looking to retire and things like that. Cause that that's an investment fund, so. It, it could be that, you know, my 401k has got a piece of Shamrock Holdings, right? And if it does, then, you know, part of the uh, reason for, for you know, my financial advisor investing in, in that fund might might be, oh, you know, they bought the Taylor Swift catalog for $300 million. It's speculated to be worth $450. Um, that, that should be a good investment. Um, you know, so maybe you make that buy and then all of a sudden you find out that she's going to go out and re-record everything and um, she's going to dilute that market. Right. Um, so that that asset doesn't have the same value, um, you know, before it was announced that she was going to do that. The, the values potentially diminished some. So uh, before we started rolling, you mentioned uh, that you're doing some work on NFTs and, and the protection of that work. How does that tie into this in, in terms of artist rights and ownership of a piece of art? And, and you know, what do you see on the landscape of what could be coming through the NFT or non-fungible token uh, channel? Yeah, NF, NFTs are, are a very, very, very interesting development. Um, so I, I don't know how much the, the listeners are going to understand about the cryptocurrency market, but with, with cryptocurrency, you've got, you've got fungible tokens, right? So, so cryptocurrencies are, are not unique. A Bitcoin is a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. NFTs are, are unique and they're used for a different purpose. They are strictly a, a market-based value proposition. Um, you know, I think Dan and I both both play the guitar, and Dan, you probably know that. Um, you know, a 1968 Fender Stratocaster in you know pretty good condition, or even a little bit beat up, costs a lot more than you know a brand new Fender Stratocaster that was made last year. And the reason for that is because rich guys that play guitars have driven the market that way. It's not that that old guitar is any better than the new one, although some people might argue that, you know, those, those guitars are expensive because the market has made them expensive and NFTs, it's, it's the same thing. Let's, since we're talking about Taylor, like suppose, suppose she re-records, I guess she's, I'm assuming she's doing things in sequence. So let's, let's 
let's assume that she's in the process of re-recording her very first album right now. Um, so she's going to record an original and if she wanted to, she could generate an NFT for that original and, and auction it off. Right. And there are probably rich music fans out there that, you know, would be willing to pay potentially millions of dollars, right. For the uh, NFT supported original of, of that recording. Um, it doesn't mean that that's going to be the only one. NFTs have, they have public keys and they have private keys. So if you've got the public key and the private key, then you've got the original. Um, but the public key is out there. So it doesn't mean other copies of that re-recording are not going to be out there. But, you know, potentially the very first one, the, the original, could be worth a lot of money. You know, the same goes for, for any work of art, any book. I know the, the uh, head of Twitter actually auctioned off the first tweet. He auctioned off an NFT for the very first tweet, and I think I think they made like five hundred thousand um, dollars and donated it to charity. But you can you can kind of see my point. You know, the the NFTs are going to be they're going to be very interesting because you you just never know what the market's going to be willing to pay for for an original of something or another until you until you support it with an NFT and get it out there. Yeah, we, we did cover NFTs briefly in, in a, another show. We were kind of talking about just all the acronyms, SPACs, and ESG investing, and NFTs was, were thrown in there um, just to kind of explain the concept, and, and I'm sure it's something we'll, we'll continue to talk about as it develops. Because in my mind, it, it could go a couple different ways, right? It, it could be the digital version of Beanie Babies, uh, where it's got value just until the moment that it doesn't, uh, and, and nobody's excited to have a box of Beanie Babies, which my mom still does. Uh, but in the other way could simply be that it's a great way to track royalties, to track sales in the future and, and to ultimately monetize a piece of art. Uh, and, and I think that's the optimistic view on, on what they could be. And, and if that's the case, then, then it could be an enormous market. Yeah. Scott, again, we appreciate you joining us today to talk a little bit about intellectual property and some of the things going on in your world. Uh, we hope you join us again on our next rendition of Check Your Balances. If you have any questions, either about intellectual property or anything just on your mind, please send us an email at checkyourbalances at outlook.com. Scott, Ross, it's been a pleasure. Likewise, thank you.